Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. You're about to meet yet another accomplished creative female powerhouse. Deborah Grace Weiner is not only an author, a dramatist, a historian, and producer, she's also a leading expert on the American songbook and musical theater. In order not to make this introduction last for days, here are some career highlights. Deborah spent nine seasons as artistic director of Manhattan's 92nd Street Wise Lyrics and Lyricist American Songbook Concert Series. Her show, Baby Dream Your Dream, celebrated Dorothy Fields and the women of the American Songbook. She's also created shows about Jerome Kern, Fred Astaire, and Ginger Rogers. And speaking of Dorothy Fields, she was the focus of Deborah's book, On the Sunny Side of the Street, The Life and Lyrics of Dorothy Fields. There are more books, and they include The Night and the Music, Rosemary Clooney, Barbara Cook, and Julie Wilson, Inside the World of Cabaret. Sing out, Louise! 150 stars of the musical theater remember 50 years on Broadway. Deborah also authored three coffee table books to accompany a three-box, 22-CD set of the complete early recordings of Rosemary Clooney. Deborah's articles have appeared in the New York Times, Town and Country, and numerous other publications. Her plays and writing for musical theater have been developed at Lincoln Center Theater, Primary Stages, the Westport Country Playhouse, the Lark, and the Actor Studio, where she is artistic advisor to the Playwrights Director's Workshop. And then there are her benefit shows for venues like New York City Center and Town Hall. Last but so not least, Deborah recently launched a new series, the Classic American Songbook Series at Feinstein's 54. Or below. So enough from me. Let's meet and get to know Deborah Grace Weiner. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, Sandy, thank you so much for having me on. Well, listen, it's been my pleasure, but we've run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> so when I meet such creative women, I like to go back in time to get a sense of why you are who you are. When you were growing up, were you putting on musicals in, in, in the backyard, or did your parents just take you to the theater all the time? What's your story? Well, you know, kind of. I, I grew up in Manhattan, mm-hmm. and um, and my family had a little place as well in Westport, Connecticut. And those are two places where if you, if you grow up there, you're lucky because you're surrounded by all kinds of theater and all mm-hmm. kinds of music and all kinds of arts, visual and performing arts. And so I sort of was very fortunate in that I grew up in the middle of of all this kind of culture. My dad was a cardiologist and internist, and my mom is a former concert pianist. Ah. So they had a kind of a, a an interesting life and an interesting group of friends. And as a, as a teenager, I got to be an apprentice at the White Barn Theater in Westport, Connecticut, which was Lucille Lortel's oh, sure. uh, summer theater. So I hung out both at the White Barn Theater, working there as an apprentice from the age of about 15, mm-hmm. as well as being in town with the Westport Country Playhouse, which is sort of a legendary summer theater sure. at that time. You know, Until recently, uh, it did summer stock. And but you were more comfortable working behind the stage? Well, it was to fun. On. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. oh, well I, was, I was 15, and the people on the stage were like, you know, Jason Robards and stuff like oh, that. Oh, I didn't mean that. You were so, going to no, push no, them off. I'm, but... I'm, no, no, I'm, 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 being, I'm being funny and sassy. Um, no, it was as a teenager, it was fun. Of course, when I was in school, sure, I was in all the plays, and right. I, I had the lead parts in all the plays, and, and, you know, I think most of us in the theater who do other things at one time, probably as kids, you know, started off kind of performing in that 
sort of thing. But, I mean, I wrote from a very early age, and I was that kid who was writing plays at the age of eight and nine and performing them as well. Well, were you wearing all these hats even at that young well, age. Well, I was, you know, you, you know, you're with friend, you know, you're with kids in the summertime, and you go, hey, let's do this show, hey, let's do this thing. Yeah, and let's put on a play. Let's put on a play. It, it's always there's always those kids, and mm-hmm. I, I was one of those kids, mm-hmm. and I'm a kind of a gatherer. Anyway, it's funny, especially in musical theater. I think we all kind of have similar stories when you when you talk to your friends or you meet new people. Uh, you say, oh yeah, I was that kid, and I was watching the old old movie musicals, and I was. Was there any one in particular, not so much on film, but by virtue of the fact that you grew up in Manhattan yeah. and you're being taken to Broadway to see shows, any one or two that really resonated with you? As a kid, I remember the very first musical I ever saw was Fiddler on the Roof. I remember uh, it was a friend's birthday party and took a few uh, took a few of her friends mm-hmm. to, to see this show. And I was thrilled by it. It was so exciting. It was. I remember the dancing, mm-hmm. and I remember just the thrill of the sound of the orchestra and the the kind of the stagecraft. I it. know and exactly was, what you mean. I remember seeing Ain't Misbehavin', uh, which I just loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a little older then, and uh, I just loved that. My parents were really classical music people. They had a subscription to the opera and a subscription to the Philharmonic, and whenever my mom really didn't want to see Carmen for the 87th time, <laughs> she would send me or my sister with my dad. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was always on a school night, so that was kind of a drag, and you'd had to get dressed up. I bet there were not a lot of yous in the audience back then. No, there were a lot of grown-ups yeah. in the audience, but uh, my dad was a really lovely and charming man and a man of the world and, and a, quite a bit older than my mother. And he had he was very well-traveled and just a lovely, sweet, debonair kind of guy. So the fun part was at intermission or one of the many intermissions. You, you could go to the bar and he'd get you a ginger ale and he'd have whatever he would have. And, <laughs> right. and you'd sort of look out the window and look at the Chagalls mm-hmm. and look at the chandeliers. Mm-hmm. Did you pursue this in college? Sure. So what did you major sure. in? Sure. I, I, well, I went to Swarthmore College, very small liberal arts college right outside Philly. Mm-hmm. I did do th- English and theater. Uh, I declared as a history major just because you I had felt to. like it. Yeah, I, I, there were, I took all the English and theater courses that they had, mm-hmm. and I did a lot of extracurricular theater. I was writing plays. I wrote plays in high school. I wrote plays in college. I would get them put on. I was involved. My sister, who also was there, ran the— She went to Swarthmore, She too? went to Swarthmore oh, wow. as well. Uh-huh. And she's a year younger than me. And so she ran the—they um, had this little Sunday night coffee house thing called Mephisto's. And for some reason, somebody said, uh, some upperclassman said to my sister, Jess, okay, you're doing this now. I'm done with it. And so we just kind of, I kind of helped her out. She ran it. But we, on all, all our friends, we would just do, we would do plays. We'd do cabaret. We would do different kinds of shows. So you had a great shows. venue. Yeah, it was a great venue. Uh-huh. So I was always kind of doing that. I always knew I wanted to be in the theater. I always wrote. Uh, and I did perform. I used to write plays in school and then be in them. Mm-hmm. And it was so nerve-wracking because I would be going through the performance and my mind would be, wait, is the audience understanding this? You know, yeah. my mind would be yeah. in my writer's mind. Sure. And it was so stressful that at, at one point I just went, I, I, you know what, there's millions of people who are going to be really, really successful and talented actors and I'm not going to be one of them. So cut but, my loss. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, but I knew that uh, that writing was something that was very special to me and and uh, people told me I could do rather well. So you came back to New York, obviously. I did. I and- came back to New York. I had one honest job in life, and that was family friend and mentor got me a job at the Metropolitan Opera tearing raffle tickets 
for the <laughs> raffle. It was like a summer job, uh-huh. and they took, you know, I guess temporary workers or right. whatever. But it was fun because I graduated from college on, in, you know, whatever it was, the beginning of June. And I think, you know, the following week, I just walked through the doors of the Metropolitan Opera, and I could go there every day. And it was fun. And then from there, uh, after a couple of months, this same mentor got mm-hmm. me a job as the assistant, editorial assistant to the editor of Opera News Magazine. And I worked there for two years, which when you're 21 or 22 seems like an eternity. And then they allowed me to write uh, something for the magazine. And I wrote a profile of Frances Gershwin Godofsky, who was George and Ira Gershwin's younger sister. Really? Oh, yeah. There was um, Arthur. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously George and Ira. And then there was also Arthur. And there was Frankie. I don't think I ever knew he had a sister. Sure. She was the youngest. And they doted on her. She was very close to both of her famous brothers. Uh And, um, And she was really the kid's sister. She had danced in the and, and had performed in the Cole Porter Review in Paris. Was the transition from opera to musical theater, was that natural? I went to the opera because my parents did. And I, I loved it. And, you know, it was fun and very, very theatrical. But I was a musical theater kid since I was a, a kid. I loved musicals. Mm-hmm. I loved movie musicals and uh, whatever, stage musicals and, and, and cast albums and standards. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I was listening to Ella Fitzgerald when I was a teenager and Manhattan Transfer mm-hmm. and, uh, and Nat Cole and Louis Armstrong and, um, and anybody, you know, anybody you could think of. Peggy Lee, Rosemary Clooney. I Bar- loved uh, Barbara um, Cook. Barbara Cook. That was my first Broadway show, seeing her and She Loves Me. Oh, See, I'm very jealous. She Loves Me is actually, it's very hard to to say that I'm trying to think who I might offend. But Sheldon Harnick is one of my major mentors. So it's safe to say that She Loves Me, if I had to pick one perfect musical, that would be I it. think She Loves Me would be the perfect, it's a perfect musical. What happened with you and the American Songbook? How did this come to pass? Oh well, I well I'm a I'm a playwright and a and a theater writer as I and mentioned. I, and I work yes. sure and I and I work on shows. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I was writing plays. We were right. doing, you know, working on musicals, doing things like that. Yeah, but and, so what? And that so, doesn't mean that becomes your job and that you have the talent. Well, I loved the music and I knew the music really well. And so what happened is that if you're 23 or whenever I stopped having the honest job at the Met. There's no such thing really as making a living as a playwright. Some playwrights do make a living as a playwright, but most playwrights, even the Pulitzer Prize winning ones, get money from anonymously punching up movie scripts and and, (laughs) Uh um, Uh all that other stuff, writing stuff for TV and all of that. A sort of smorgasbord of... Uh, of did I do say that right? You, you, you did that beautifully. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. I thank you. I appreciate that. I thought you were Swedish. Gosh, <laughs> geez, Sandy. <laughs> so I've learned really early on that I was able to write prose. So my first this first article was about George Gershwin's sister Frankie, right? Uh, who right. I knew. Right. So when Opera News uh, editor said to me, "Now I know you're a writer." You can always feel free to, to to tell me if there's something that you'd like to write for us. I would, you know, we we'll will publish it. We'll publish it, mm-hmm. or we will. I will help you. Mm-hmm. And so I said, "Well, gosh, let me think about it." And then I came back. I said, "You know what? I know Frances Gershwin, and I'd like to write a little piece about her." And they went, "Great!" Mm-hmm. And that was the first thing I ever had published in print. And I and it worked out. And I and they let me do more. And I found out that these things that I knew about. I could write about, and I could make kind of a sort of a living doing a, a sort of a dovetailed 
smorgasbord uh-huh. of writing for the theater, writing about the theater, writing about music. And so early on, I was just, I, I, it just I didn't know any better. It of, just happened. Yeah. It happened kind of sideways. And because of that, I mean, I, I had no fear of that kind of stuff then. Yeah, you weren't smart enough back then, I wasn't then, smart right? enough, mm-hmm. no. And I, uh, I got a book published. Uh, pretty early on, and it was with a wonderful guy named Dennis McGovern that worked at Opera News with me, and he was much older and had been an actor and, and musical So you co-authored a book? We co-authored a book called I Remember Too Much, because one day I was sort of writing stuff for Opera News, and there had been a, a very famous production of the Flatermouse in 1950, and it was kind of the Broadway Flatermouse, because... Uh, Garson Kanan had directed it. Oh, wow. And it, uh-huh. well, it had opera people, but it had a Broadway thing. Howard Dietz of Dietz and Schwartz, who wrote, you know, Dancing in the Dark. And he had written the libretto, a new libretto in 1950. So it was kind of this popular, you know, via Broadway mm-hmm. metropolitan opera production. Mm-hmm. And we had the thought of kind of getting the old cast together to do this kind of roundtable fun reunion thing. And it was, you know, like Patrice Munsell and, and Regina Resnick and Risa Stevens and Brenda wow. Lewis and and uh, and Garson Kane and came. And, and it was fun. We just did it in the back of some restaurant. And we wrote an article for Opera News. And we basically, we sort of dramaturgically kind of cut all these things together to make it. It was really like a, making a play out of it and editing this conversation. Uh-huh. And from that, Dennis one day, who was much older and a seasoned theater guy, said, OK, we're going to write a book. And I was like, okay. And I I was so dumb that I remember sitting on my bed or something in the country uh, and calling up publishers on the phone and going, hey, we have this book and you want to publish it? And William Morrow, an editor from William Morrow said, oh, really? This was an opera? Well, you know, my husband is a big opera fan and why don't you come in and meet? And we went and met, and and they signed the book. So there's the a lot of serendipity in your life too, sure. in addition to talent. You know, I think that we all have kind of you sort of throw your energy in the direction that your passion is in, and doesn't always um, work though. I'm extremely, extremely okay, but lucky. you're also talented. And I and but there's I got into the New York Times. I started writing for the New York Times very young. Uh, the same way, I was just dumb enough to just write them a letter and go, "Hey, um, Marnie Nixon is going to be at the White Barn Theater." Um, and I think she's in yeah. Westport, Connecticut, and I think that she would make a sort of interesting profile. And, you know, she's the ghostess with the mostess and had dubbed all these famous right. movie musicals. Right. My like Fair My Lady, Fair Lady yeah. and uh-huh. West Side Story. Right. And this, you know, and mm-hmm. she was in The Sound of Music as a nun all by herself. And, um, and she was a wonderful singer, but she had done a lot of that. And that's what she was sort of known for. Right. And um, she was very nice. And The Times just said, sure. I guess they liked my, the way the letter was written or something. Mm-hmm. And so I was maybe, I, I don't remember, but maybe like 24 or something like that, 25. So from there, I, I contributed freelance to the arts and leisure section mm-hmm. of the Times on mm-hmm. Sunday. And it, would, it, it sort of became my, my thing to write about the American Songbook, musical theater and pop standards. Give the definition of the American Songbook. The American Songbook is this kind of made-up name it's a little bit like when they say somebody had a nervous breakdown. There's nothing actually medically clinical about that term. It's not a real diagnosis. The American Songbook is this made-up name for what was basically popular music before rock and roll. You know, from from the onset of jazz-based popular music. Right. Basically, anything you would hear, Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, And that, didn't Michael Peggy Feinstein Lee. make that the art form? Didn't he sort of bring that back? 
Michael Feinstein is a very dear friend of mine and the greatest guy in the world. And Michael has done an enormous amount to be an ambassador Good word. for the yeah. American song. Yeah. Michael's a great ambassador. Uh-huh. But um, but in all, and I'm sure Michael would be the first person to say this, n- um, no, this music never went away. Right. Linda, Linda Ronstadt recorded a hugely, hugely popular trilogy of albums in the 80s uh, with a famous orchestrator and arranger, Nelson Riddle. Uh, she got him to do this with her mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. vice versa. Mm-hmm. And and these albums were enormously impactful. So here she was, this rock star, this sort of, you know, who, pop, crossed, pop over. who crossed over. Yeah. And so people have always done that. And so it had a huge bounce in the 80s when Linda Ronstadt did that. And right. there are other times. And Michael sort of came along in that time as a very, very talented singer-pianist. One of Michael's greatest contributions is as an archivist. He's a wonderful performer and a talented Maybe guy. that's where I was going with that. Because he's a performer as well as a scholar, as well as an ambassador, he's kind of really taken up the, the mantle in terms of being one of the people who, uh, who really protects and perpetuates, uh, and perpetuates right? the mm-hmm. music and is mm-hmm. very interested. But there are many, many people who do that. The great musical theater historian Robert Kimball, who wrote all those, he wrote a, a series of coffee table books that many people who like musical theater might know, uh, which is the complete lyrics of. So it's the complete lyrics of Lorenz Hart. Mm-hmm. He did Ira Gershwin and Cole Porter and Frank Lesser and Johnny mm-hmm. Mercer and Irving Berlin. Bob is is an advisor to the estates. Of Cole Porter and the Gershwins and all kinds of people and and, uh, was one of the people instrumental in in getting uh, the Encore series at City Center off the ground Mm -hmm. uh, or advising them, which is um, musicals in concert, if people don't know, basically classic musicals. And so there's a whole genre of, of, of classic culture in general and and classic classic Broadway, classic standards. So the songs of the American Songbook... Um, were the mass popular music, like I say, anything that Ella or Frank Sinatra right, or Tony right, Bennett would say. Right. And uh, until rock and roll, that was all kinds of songs that were generated, whether it was they came out of Broadway musicals, uh-huh. they came out of Hollywood musicals, they came out of bands and big bands, and then individual songwriters writing for pop tunes. At one time, it was called Tin Pan Alley. But there were sort of individual pop songs, but a lot of them, and it was all the same style of music. I mean, although there's lots of rock and pop on Broadway, Broadway music, it's more of a, a boutique thing. Yeah, right. At one time, right. there was really only one kind of pop, I mean, one kind of popular music. There was, of course, country music mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and specialized kind of music. Right. But the mass pop music that you heard on the radio, uh, today it would be rock and pop. Right. Or, you know, and, you know, you include rap and that and R&B mm-hmm, and all of mm-hmm. that. But it's sort of a spectrum of that. But before rock and roll sort of reached that tipping point in the late part of the 1960s and became the mass popular music sort of driven by the youth culture that was going on, before that, there was one kind of pop music. Now, there was jazz and there was there were different parts of that spectrum. But like when a new Broadway show would open, something like My Fair Lady or The Pajama Game, something like Columbia Records would invest in that show because they were buying the right to have the rights to the score. So they had all these big singers under contract, whether it was a Rosemary Clooney or a Tony Bennett mm-hmm. or who, what have you. And they would have the right to, to try to have their singers under contract record the songs from that show 
and try to get hit records out of it. And you didn't have to see the show to appreciate the music. Right. I mean, that was what was so great. The crossover was so successful and so seminal. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And some shows, like uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein shows, there are some songs that break out and do well as pop songs. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. there's some songs that are so integral to the plot yeah, that they can't stand just, alone. They, they just they don't stand alone. Yeah, but there was, but then there are other shows, um, and especially early Broadway before before Rodgers and Hammerstein really took off with mm-hmm. Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. But before like 1944, a lot of the Broadway shows were really just little sort of frothy things that were a good excuse to hang a lot of great songs on. So that's why right. Rodgers yeah. and Hart and Cole Porter and lots of other composers from that era and wrote all these songs where they're famous as songs. Nobody even remembers the shows. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, like I say, I'm one of those people who's like, oh, wouldn't it have been great to see, you know, <laughs> Ethel Merman or, uh-huh, uh-huh. or whoever, Dolores Gray. Who even knows who Dolores Gray no, is? No, I don't. That name doesn't ring a bell for me. Dolores Gray was, well... Sandy. Okay. Dolores Gray was a fabulous, in quotation marks, performer who was in kismet. She was glamorous, but there was an artificiality about it. She made some movies. Uh, There's a movie called It's Always Fair Weather with a score by Comden and Green, Betty Comden and Adolph Green and uh, Andre Previn. But she was mostly a stage performer, did a lot of, uh, like from the 50s, you know, late 40s and Mm -hmm, 50s. But mm -hmm. fabulousness with a capital F. (laughs) It's sort of like drag queens like to do divas like that. Larger than life. Yeah. You do so much, as evident in terms of the introduction. But were they conscious acts on your part? I still live my life in the same way. You know, you immerse yourself. Or let me say this. Those of us who are lucky enough to have been able to, the measure of success in something like the theater is to have the privilege of waking up in the morning and being able to do it and doing what you love to do. Right. It's not measured like in other kinds of businesses where I'm successful because I make this much money or I've made that many deals. I think you talk to most people in the theater and in musical theater and in and in music and their success is measured by themselves as I got to get up this morning and be in a room with colleagues that are hugely accomplished that I admire or I love, and we got to create something together or some form of that. So those of us who are successful enough Mm -hmm. to have the privilege to work with other people who are enormously accomplished— I'm not saying that I am. I'm just saying that— No, but that's— You know, know, let me speak to that. I mean, isn't that a given that you are in a room with these people because you bring your talents to that room— one would hope, like I, in this new series that I've started at Feinstein's 54 Below that celebrates the classic American songbook, we're going to be doing a show mm-hmm. that I have invited my friend and colleague, and I absolutely adore her. She's one of the most talented, smart women working on Broadway, Kathleen Marshall, the director-choreographer who has won three Tony Awards. Mm-hmm. And she's one of the very few. She and Susan Stroman are really the only uh, uh, major female mm-hmm. yeah. director-choreographers mm-hmm. working on Broadway. There are other women directors, of course. But Kathleen is is just, she's so smart and so great. And we're creating this little show for a nightclub, this little supper club, uh, celebrating Jerome Robbins' centennial in as a concert because the idea that Jerome Robbins was able to influence some of the greatest Broadway scores in history, the scores as a director-choreographer is really interesting, mm-hmm. like Gypsy and Fiddler on the Roof right. and West Side Story and, and others. So the idea that I get to wake up 
some morning and I'd go, oh, great, I'm going to work with Kathleen today. It's the most fun thing in the world. We'll get together and we'll eat potato chips <laughs> and we'll and we'll say, what what should this be? And what we've done a number of these together. And what should what should this be? And who should we get? And what should it, you know? And I am honored to go and and create with somebody of her accomplishment. Again, this is clearly not making the donuts for you. It's really fun. I mean, do you ever step back and say, man, I stepped in it big time. You know, like this is holy cow. Oh, sure. Every day. I pinch myself. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm so grateful. That's not what I'm asking you to do. But I mean, I'm big on gratitude. And I think that I am grateful that I'm in a position where I get to work with people who are also my friends, who are also my extended family, who are also the artists that I admire the most. Mm-hmm. And we're all a little tribe. We all get to create things together. You what know, could be more it, wonderful yeah, than that? That's my point. It's, it's almost what you have to do, isn't it? Well, you better love it because it's really as the the joyful part is that you get in a room with people and you say, "Hey, let's make this and let's put on let's, a play. Let's put, it is it's, let's put on a show. Yeah, and, yeah, and let's create something out of nothing. And guess what? The joy of it is that we all get to be together and goof around together and be in a dressing and room something together. Comes out of it, and too. something and something wonderful comes out of yeah. it that people hopefully love, or at least you affect their lives, or at least you create something fun. And then you also get to sit around and gossip in a dressing room in your underwear. Well, that yeah, you that's, know, and that's, there's a perk, you know, and that's yeah. fun too. You better love it because you, you don't get paid. A lot. I mean, you know, sure, you land a great job or you're lucky enough and you get a a show that becomes some mega hit Mm -hmm. and you get royalties forever and ever. That's, of course, you know, happens all the time. But project by project, you don't think that way. You just think, ooh, what can we, what can, or you meet somebody at a party who's your old friend and you say, hey, gosh, it's nice to see you. And then, Hey, you know, we got to do something together. Let's do it. Let's think of a project together. So it's together. so not calculated in a way, you know? No, I mean, it's right. natural. It's, yeah, it is it, natural. That's the great thing. Have you been living the dream? Um, it depends what you say the dream is. For me, absolutely. Look, I'm a, a playwright and a writer and a showmaker, you know, show putter together. And I, and I do all kinds of work with music and particularly music that is from from a classic, you know, repertoire, right. you know, classic songs and, and, and musical theater music. But music that gives and you such joy. Music that gives me such joy. And I get to create things from scratch with people who are the greatest people in our business. And we all really love working with each other. Or if I write a new play, I have the privilege of calling up pals that are Tony winners and Tony nominees and, you know, and wonderful artists and say, hey, this thing is right out of the printer. We're going to do a reading. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is or if it's terrible, but you want to come and read this. And they'll go, oh, yeah, sure. That'd be really interesting and really fun. And you look at the the, the caliber of artists who are also wonderful human beings, and you're sitting around in a room discovering something new together that I I've just, you know, written, and it may be awful or Does it may be good. Does that give you pause? Then you're looking, holy <laughs> Does that happen or not so much? I, I don't do the holy shit thing as much as what it really is, is how lucky am I that I have, you know, a Karen Ziemba, who is my best friend, the Tony-winning actress, yes. dancer. Mm-hmm. Karen's been my best friend for about 20 years. And I just think, how lucky am I? And, and people like her. There's a whole 
there's a whole tribe of us, and we're all very supportive of each other. We've grown up together in the business, and they're, they're performers and directors and writers, and and uh, we've been to each other b- birthday parties. We know or knew each other. Have all the life parents. cycle events you share. Yeah, and mm-hmm. all the you know all mm-hmm. the the things that we go on the ride with, mm-hmm. and and then you look, and you know years have gone by, and you go, wow, I've known that person a long time, and so I look at those moments, and I see. You know, friends like, you know, the the, the fabulous Rebecca Luker or, you, you know, people that you just love hanging mm-hmm. out with. Mm-hmm. And, and you just go, and wow, how lucky am I that they're going to give my play a reading or that they're going to, that we're going to do this. I just got to say, Deborah, your enthusiasm, the joy that you have for what you do is so contagious. And that's what gives me such joy in terms of meeting women like you. I'm I'm jealous. <laughs> that's well. Listen, I, I'd like to do what you do. And no, but I, it's just the passion and the joy. And yeah, I'm not saying every day is a walk in the park. I get all of that. But I can't thank you enough for sharing who you are and what you are with us. I can't thank you enough for having me on and and talking to me about things that I'm interested in and you're so interesting in in your conversation and you know what <laughs> uh, it's funny that you say that my that my joy is contagious because that that's kind of a nice thing. I don't think of it that way. I just kind of like say it like I Oh, I think it is, but oh, I, oh no! You know, it's not worth it. I've come to praise Caesar. I'm not just going to, you know, fawn all over you. No, but I get to do what I love. I get to do what I love, and, and so, with it's people so, that I love. Hello. What could be better than that? The end. The end, <laughs> including this afternoon. Thank you so much for <laughs> sharing your story and your life. Thank Seriously. you so much for having me. This was an absolute delight. Oh, that's just great. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. 